Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 20th of March, Rebecca Whittlesey taught two sessions at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions where Rebecca looked at the topic of the Holy Spirit. Rebecca is on the staff team at City Hope Church London and is a regular teacher of various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. So we've reached the part of the morning now where we switch from the, the biblical theology part to the systematic theology part of the morning and we look at the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit a little bit around that um, but hopefully in a way that's not <clears throat> we don't want um, oh there's a quote I forgot to write it down there's a quote uh, I don't know who it is doesn't matter because it's just a great sentiment um, theology can some this is me not him I, theology can sometimes sound a bit uh, academic and dry because it can be very academic and um, and that's not a bad thing we need academics and scholars to do the work but actually theology should always lead to doxology is the quote I'm thinking about and so the idea that talk about God and applying our minds to understanding God should should be something that has then a uh, the outflow should be worship it should be something that fills our minds but expands our understanding in our hearts in such a way that then we just want to praise God and worship him so theology should lead to doxology that's a nice little phrase I read somewhere um, so uh, I just want to reiterate what I said earlier and I'll probably say it again later in that um, when we talk about God and when we talk about the Holy Spirit language is often a huge barrier not I don't just mean the English language I mean human words um, and, and human understanding to get around concepts is often poverty stricken and we, we haven't got enough words and we haven't got the right words but we're going to do our very best to talk about God the Holy Spirit and some of it um, will be a little bit of historical theology and doctrine just by way of introduction really. Um, so in, in Orthodox Christianity we, um, we call him the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. We believe that the Spirit and you've done the Trinity right? You did the Trinity last time I think yeah. So lots of this is you know I've done the Trinity already so actually there'll be some overlap here but um, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. He is one with the Father and Son in essence, in who he is and in will. There is one God. We are monotheists. We're a monotheistic faith and we believe in one God only. And uh, our language again lets us down. I think when we, even when we talk of persons of God, I find that language is not good enough. Um, they're, not, they're not three different people. There's one God. But we know him, the Holy Spirit, as part uh, of, of God, um, as the spirit of, of truth, of the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, all these names that are applied to him. He's one with the Father and Son, as I said. So he's eternally one with the Father and Son. This is the Trinity stuff I know you've already done. But in, in economics, if you like, in, in action, of course, we know that he then is also sent by God in history. So we've just read about that, haven't we? Where there's a moment where uh, there's a change in the history of this world, a moment that was prophesied that then, um, not that the spirit of God was not alive or active before that because he's eternal God, but there was a moment in history uh, when uh, we've just read about when he came, he was sent, the Bible says, by God. And in fact, Jesus says, doesn't he, um, at his ascension, I just refer back to the Ascension quickly because I didn't mention it in Acts 1. And uh, I spent years and years being a Christian and barely hearing the Ascension referred to. And, and that can be one of the things about our tradition of church is that um, some churches, you know, they are bound by a calendar, a church calendar and a church lectionary. And there are certain passages that are in the lectionary every, every you know, different ones every, and you go on a calendar um, rotor and it's year one or it's year two or whatever and you don't tend to miss things you actually you celebrate the festival of ascension as you do the festival of pentecost and so on 
in places like the Anglican Church. But I was a Christian for ages before I heard anyone really talk about the Ascension. And uh, and it is it, it is a, a absolutely crucial part of the Passion of Christ. The birth, resurrection, and Ascension of Jesus are all part of the same event. And even as Jesus um, anticipated this, he he told his followers that it was good for them that he, he went because he would then send the spirit, the helper, the one who would come alongside. Uh, the paraclete is, the, is that Greek word for one who comes alongside like an advocate and a helper. So as G, and as we know, of course, Jesus in his time on, on the earth was present in one small country, in one place. I mean, they lived in Egypt as well when he was young. But I mean, in, in a physical geographical location, the Lord Jesus lived. If you wanted to meet Jesus, you had to go there. And of course, it is good for you that I go so that uh, the helper can come. It obviously now means that when Jesus says, behold, I'm with you to the end of the age, that is true by his spirit, God is with us. Me here in London, you there in Manchester, our brothers and sisters all over the world. Um, yeah, okay, that was, I don't know, that was the, sorry, the ascension crept in there, but so important actually, the ascension that I, I had a conversation with a young, young Christian. She became a Christian here one day after I uh, preached and we were chatting about it and I, um, I started to go through some of the fundamentals of the Christian faith with her. And we were meeting one on one. And then one day, a little way into the process, she said to me, well, I understand about Jesus' resurrection and why that's important. So, but did he die again? And because uh, I thought, uh, great question, right? Because he's not here now. And I thought, oh, that's so, it's so, so important, isn't it? That we know that he, he lives now in his resurrected, glorified body in, at the right hand of the Father, lives forever. No, he didn't die again. He can never die and um and actually when we're resurrected we won't die again either really you know paul talks about if, if christ's resurrection is not true to corinth he writes this to corinth doesn't he then uh, just forget it and go home you know it's absolutely true and the hope of resurrection now is ours as well as a result um anyway so jesus says before he leaves his followers and ascends back to the father he says it's good for you because i'm going to send the spirit he's uh, going to be your helper and your comforter and so through the history of uh, the church looking back to you know when these our understanding of these things these doctrines like the trinity who jesus is who the spirit is these were sort of formed in church history way back in around the, the fourth century it was really the christology uh, battle that was won first some of you be very familiar with this um, belief that was becoming popular that Jesus wasn't actually divine, um, uh, propagated by a guy called Arius. And, um, and so in the fourth century, there was lots of time and effort given to establishing the orthodox beliefs. Now, who is Jesus the Christ? Who is he? What do we understand him to be? And it was really after that, um, that battle be won, if you like. There was more thought and more work put into who is the spirit? How do we understand him? Is he divine? Do we understand him as part of the Trinity? And as you know, of course, Trinity is not a word in the Bible. It's a theological word that has come out from understanding what we find in the Bible. So people at the time, and people at Athanasius, used things from scripture to, you know, we take scripture and we make theology. So, um, you know, we under, things that we understand of God, we, we get from the scripture and we, we form them into these, what we call orthodox beliefs. Things you, things, if you say you're a Christian, we know you believe these things, the orthodox faith. So, um, yes, and, and from things in the scripture we can think of, like um, the um, instruction to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You'll be familiar with that probably from the Trinity. Um, and the and the creeds, you know, again, we're in a tradition that doesn't really use creeds, but I'm a big fan of creeds that help people put words to and understand, you know, what the Bible teaches about these things. Um, and the original, the creed from Nicaea in the early fourth century, as I said, was very much about establishing who Christ is. Uh, and then in Constantinople, in um, much later in 381, there was more added about the spirit. Uh, you can look those up those, if you don't use those in your own. Um, I, think, I think confessing truth is just such a powerful, wonderful thing. And we do it often 
don't we, in song? We confess truths and we tell one another what we believe and we remind ourselves what we believe. But confessions and creeds, I think, can be a really helpful way of doing that. Um, another hero from way back when, Gregory of Nazianzus, so that you're familiar with some of these names, and a little group known as the Cappadocian Fathers. Um, sometimes these, these people feel, seem very sort of remote from us, and, but they're incredibly readable um, if you find good translations. Um, and Gregory of Nazianzus was one, a person who in fermenting and developing these thoughts, he said, well, um, <clears throat> scripture clearly applies titles of God to the spirit. Uh, he's called holy, you know, in and of himself. Um, and he doesn't need sanctifying. He, is, um, he himself is the one who sanctifies. All of this sort of contributing to the developing thought of the divinity of the spirit of the Trinity. And this quote from Basil of Caesarea, who was one of the Cappadocian fathers, in fact, Basil was the brother of um, Gregory of Nyssa, the other, the other one of the three. But anyway, he wrote this. All, all who are in need of sanctification, all who are in need of sanctification turn to the Spirit. All those seek him who live by virtue, for his breath refreshes them and comes to their aid in the pursuit of their natural and proper end. Capable of perfecting others, the Spirit himself lacks nothing. He is not a being who needs to restore his strength, but himself supplies life. So again, in that effort to kind of put words to what we think of him, the spirit, there's, you can see some of this in the, the history of the development of theology around the Holy Spirit. Again, as I said, <laughs> words are not good enough because even referring to him as a being, you know, we would generally understand that as being, uh, you know, I'm a being, you're a being. They were separate entities. And of course, as we've already said, it's important to remember that the spirit is not in, he's not separate from the father and son in essence and will. Um, and sometimes when we attempt to do what we're doing today, we fall over ourselves a little bit because we're almost trying to pull apart the functions of the father, the son and the spirit. And in some ways that's rooted in what we find in scripture. You know, that the father clearly sent the son um, and it says the son learned obedience is submitted to the father. There's clearly helpful ways of, uh, of establishing those functions, if you will. And yet we have one God, one essence and one will. I'm not talking about the human will that Jesus had in his incarnation. It's a sort of separate matter and we're not doing that today. But so, again, bear with me when the language is not adequate. Um, so, so we know he's God. We accept in, in Orthodox Christianity that the spirit is divine. And we find that through the revelation of scripture. Um, I've already mentioned the baptismal formula, but also the apostle Paul in his letter to Corinth, when he talks about um, the same spirit, give gifts, he, he uses spirit and God sort of interchangeably there. And as we just read actually, um, Acts five with Peter challenging Ananias about his deceit, you know, he says, uh, what, what, what made you um, conceive this thing, didn't he? To lie to the Holy Spirit. You've not lied to men, but to God. So again, he just he equates God and the Spirit there. And I don't know if you noticed in Basil's quote, he, um, he talks about the Spirit, his breath refreshes. And again, just remember, helpful to remember, the word that's used as Spirit is also breath and wind. So it, you could read every allusion to the Spirit of God as the breath of God. They're the same word. And sometimes I think that's quite helpful just to remember that metaphors help us, don't they, to um, understand things. Okay, so the Holy Spirit, as I've said, um, as prophesied, we've seen at Pentecost, there's this, there's this moment of what you, we might call the, an outpouring of the Spirit. Again, all of these metaphors fall down because I don't know how you pour a person. But we understand what we mean by it. We mean a manifestation of him being present and him working and him doing something. And we have to use language that describes things, even if it's not quite good enough. You know, how you're filled with a person, how you're, do you know what I mean? You, uh, these things, if you, if you think about it too long, you go mad. But um, we're going to use the language we've got. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just show up in Acts 2. He's, he's always been. He's an eternal spirit of God. And, of course, in the story of the people of God, he's not been inactive 
um, until we get to the early church, of course. And there's in your notes just a few allusions to times that we read in the Old Testament, specifically the activity of, of the spirit. Um, a creation, you remember right at the very beginning, so the very first words of our Bible, we read that we hear that the spirit was present um, in creation. However you read that account of creation, the writer of it wants us to know um, that the spirit is active in bringing into being what we see around us. He's active in giving revelation to, um, to people. You can read this. At the, there, the, the uh, passages I've put down are just examples. There'll be many more. Feel free to go and do a survey of that. But he gave revelation. <clears throat> and again, we just read about that in... Um, with Philip, didn't we? He, he says something specific, gives revelation to Philip, but we read about that in the Old Testament as well. We read that the Spirit of God gives power to people, individual people, and that's the difference, isn't it, between what Joel prophet, prophesied about the Spirit um, being put out on all flesh, on all people, regardless of, of you know, age and background and job and all the rest of it, that age of the Spirit to come, the church age that we live in, was different from what we're reading here, for example, in Exodus, where it says the spirit anointed an individual for an individual task. And the thing I love about this is it's not necessarily the individual task is not necessarily teaching the scriptures. In this case, it's like making something with your hands for the tabernacle. You know, it's like craftsmanship or ability to do something practical that is for God's glory and the spirit anoints people for those tasks. And um, we should take great encouragement from that, whatever our daily work is and pray that, God anoints us to do those things to the best of our ability in, in order to bring him glory. Gifts of leadership as well, we can read that the Spirit specifically gives a, anoints people for leadership in the Old Testament. But there's many more. Um, that's just a real whistle-stop tour. And again, it's in a way, it's just to reset our minds to think, oh yes, actually, let's not forget the Holy Spirit doesn't just turn up in Acts. He's... Uh, and he's not working in isolation from the Father and the Son. God is at work, however we express that. And then quickly again, and I'm racing through these things because I think the most helpful thing really for us is to, is to get to the point where we start thinking about the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, you know, because we come here today not just to sort of learn things in our heads, but to, um, to grow and to, to know God more. And like I said, for theology to lead to doxology, for us to know God more and to, um, to glorify him with our lives. So it's good to get to that bit where we're thinking more about us and our experience, I think. But the Holy Spirit, obviously, we see him as well cropping up in the um, Gospels and uh, letters where we read about the, the life of Christ. So again, just a few notes I've put there. So at his birth, so the incarnation, the Spirit is involved. Um, and then, of course, we're very familiar with that event of Jesus's baptism, where there's actually a, it seems to be a physical, it seems to be there was a physical manifestation of um, the spirit of God present at Jesus's baptism. And that, again, that's another scripture that people would go to, you know, to talk about Trinity um, is the anointing of Jesus at his baptism. The spirit also, it says, led Jesus into the wilderness for his work, for his temptation, his wilderness days in the, uh, of temptation and filled him while he was there, led and filled him in his temptations. Um, he, Jesus himself says he overcomes demons by the power of the spirit. That's that references there for you in Matthew. And of course, um, the spirit is active as is the father <laughs> in raising Christ from the dead and as we read the spirit that same spirit lives in us so the holy spirit uh, i think the next slide is called the holy spirit in the church but in your notes but just as a little kind of historical timeline if you like of the activity of the spirit or the activity or the the locus of the presence of god because if you remember we talked in acts about the temple and the presence of God, the place where God comes to live among people, the tabernacle and then the temple. Well, that's the 
if you like, the glory of God is sometimes, uh, you know, interchangeably used with the presence of God or the spirit of God. The active presence of God amongst his people, of course, was in the temple and in the tabernacle. And also, of course, you get manifestations of God's presence in the Old Testament in theophanies. So actual appearances of God. So I suppose you'd include in that the burning bush. Um, I think the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire when the tabernacle was filled um, with the glory of God. That's where we see in the Old Testament narratives, the presence of God and in, in the gospels, the presence of God. Uh, somebody's just asked for the two words. So it's ruach in Hebrew, R-U-A-C-H, and it's pneuma in Greek, P-N-E-U-M-A. Um, breath, wind, spirit, yeah. Uh, in the Gospels, of course, Jesus is the focus. He's the, he's the manifestation of the presence of God on the earth, the very second, second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself. And then after the ascension, after what Jesus said about it's good that he goes because the Spirit will come, the Holy Spirit is now the primary manifestation of the presence of the Trinitarian God among us on the earth. Um, one commentator puts this little pithy sentence together. The work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. May agree with that last bit or not, but that's one uh, commentator's view on the sort of a, a pithy sentence summarizing the work of the Spirit. It's probably not, it's probably not the best idea to try and summarize the work of the Spirit of God in one pithy sentence, but um, <laughs> people, people will try. Um, Okay, so that's that. Let's, let's do this little a bit about baptism in the spirit. Then we'll have a breakout to talk about it. Maybe we'll do it the other way around. Okay, yeah, we're going to do it the other way around. Okay, so in your notes, there's a, a survey. This is just kind of to stop you falling asleep or snap you back in the room. Uh, some questions to think about and ask, ask yourself. And this, I think, again, I got from um, a course I did um, with Andrew Wilson, uh, he does a similar exercise. And baptism in the spirit, there's 10 statements written down, one to 10, and they're not questions, they're statements about um, our experience as Christians of the spirit. And this is really born out of the fact that there's, um, there are Christians who don't believe, first of all, that the Holy Spirit is still active today in the way that we do who believe that the gifts of the spirit are died out with the apostles, or actually they, they tend to think a bit later than the apostolic age, but there are those who very clearly say, well, there's no, there shouldn't be an expectation of a Pentecost moment, a kind of anointing and filling with the spirit that is subsequent to your conversion to Christ, that there's no evidence for that. And, and there are those who very much say, well, as soon as you're born again, that's a work of the spirit. And so the spirit is in you, God is in you. Um, and we shouldn't encourage people to look for more, um, you know, specific manifestations of the spirit coming or being received or anointing. And there's different opinions on that. And in one sense, I don't think it matters that much because I think we all want to be, have lives that, as I said earlier, are constantly experiencing interruptions and interactions with the spirit of God, however we understand that. But just to, as I say, a little exercise, Take those 10 statements that are written there about Christians and the spirit and just quickly, don't overthink it because you'll get tied in knots with it. Just quickly think, do I agree with that? Do I think that's right? Do I think that's right? And just go through it quickly and tick the ones that you think you agree with. We'll do that now on our own. Yeah, because you don't need to be in a room with someone just to tick some some um, statements. Think for yourself and think, which of these do I think are correct? Um, and then in a sec, we're going to break out rooms and, and discuss what we've got. Is that all right? So just take a couple of minutes to do that. Good. Well, I don't know how you got on with that, but that's just a little exercise. Again, it gets you talking and uh, thinking about what, what you've been taught or what you've absorbed about how you receive the spirit or how we experience God by his spirit. I won't ask you for show of hands if anybody agreed with none or all of them or anything in between, but um, 
reading, as I mentioned earlier, the creeds, reading from the Belgic Confession, which is um, a confession from 1561. It says this, we believe that to attain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the, the Christian faith, the Holy Spirit creates in our hearts an upright faith, which embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, takes hold of him and seeks nothing more besides him. Just another way of saying that the spirit is active um, in our conversion. So many of the things you've read in those 10 statements talk about the work of the spirit in our, uh, in our faith in Christ, in our conversion. Um, Jesus, of course, in John 3, talks about being born again, meaning to be born of the spirit and so on. So, okay, we are moving on to um, what I said earlier, the <clears throat> more personal stuff, if you like, how we talk about what the spirit does in us and um, how we understand that and our expectations of life with the spirit. Language, again, <clears throat> is going to help us, but also let us down. Um, but the, as a, and as I said, if you've got the page that says the Holy Spirit in us, and at the top it says uh, spirit, Hebrew ruach, Greek pneuma, wind, breath, spirit, that's where I am. And there's a question there, I think it's on your notes, says how will you catch the wind of God in your life? And this is a metaphor which I find incredibly helpful. Um, uh, you know, we, we use the terminology or the expression being filled with the spirit. The Bible uses that, that phrase and we use it as well. Um, and often I think when we think of filling something, we think of liquid, you know, pouring from a jug into a cup or something, being filled with something, you know, something that kind of you get filled and then you, it, you get more and more filled like a, a cup that's full to the brim or whatever. But, um, the metaphor that I find incredibly helpful uh, when I think about filling is, is more the way that the wind fills a sail of a boat or, or, a, or a wind surfboard, if you're that way inclined. That um, the breath, the wind, the ruach of God fills us in the way that the wind fills the sail of a boat. And that image to me speaks of the spirit being the one or God being the one that then propels us, that then is responsible for our direction in life. He's responsible for uh, where we're going. Um, and uh, there are things, you know, the metaphor can carry on and you have a choice when you go sailing. I'm not a sailor, I live in the middle of London, but it, um, the choice, you have to put your sail up, you know, and you have to put it in the right position and you have to swing the boom at the right time and do all those things in order to catch the wind. And there are, things in our lives when I say what will you do to catch the wind of God it's like what's our what what's our what's our behavior our activities our habits what's the posture that encourages the wind of God in our lives does that make sense I think that to me that metaphor is often more helpful than the idea of filling up with a liquid to halfway or to the top or whatever but more um like the breath of God in our sails um so these are the things that the Bible says that the, that the spirit does. He fills, he baptizes, and we probably have heard that expression, you know, baptism in the spirit is the title of this sheet you just looked at. Um, and baptize is the word that refers to being um, drenched in something, the, the translation. This is an interesting thing, isn't it, about um, religion, is that we get words which become part of our religious language and we don't translate them anymore. It's a bit like tongues, like speaking in tongues, you know, the word tongue just is an old-fashioned word for language. So I think it'd be much more helpful just to translate the words in a, in a modern way, not in an old-fashioned way, but for some reason we don't do that often. So, um, but baptize, actually the word in the, in the original just means to, to drench, you know, or to immerse. So, you know, when John was baptizing people in the Jordan, of course, they, they're being immersed in water, but, you, but it don't, doesn't only re refer to a religious ritual. It's a word that, um, means just to, to drench something so you can you could baptize your dinner tomorrow in gravy you know you you pour it over and and drench it he empowers one of the works of the spirit is to empower we've seen a lot of that in the acts of the apostles this morning um and power we often think about as something you know big and showy and and of course some of those miraculous works we read about um 
of healing and so on and, and the miraculous escape from prison you know power works of power of god which are incredible they're dynamic and they they're signs they're wonders but also the bible talks a lot about power coming from the spirit power not just to perform wonders but power to know things paul often writes in his prayers i pray that you'd you would have power to understand or power to know the hope um and there's a there's an activity of the spirit that empowers us to know god and to have hope and to understand things and that's a work of power that we read we're reading the bible there'll be some passages for that later one of the works of the spirit is is as a seal um again probably not a a word that means that much to us now but a seal it to the original hearers would have meant as as i'm sure you know a um you know personal guarantee of something it had the seal of somebody so you you know the image of of taking a, a stamp and dipping it in wax and then um, stamping something with your seal with your agreement with your um guarantee so so the word guarantee is used in our translations and that's a helpful one i think that somebody just put it up uh, guarantee it's a proof it's a safety it's a <clears throat> a down payment in fact um one translation uses of in our bibles doesn't it he, he, he's a down payment um all of these are metaphors obviously of of what god does by his spirit he enlightens um when i started this morning i said god is with us by his spirit and of course as we apply ourselves to think and to read and together in community to look at his word it's a work of god's spirit in us to teach us um, and the bible refers to him as a guide as well as a teacher and jesus in fact jesus said didn't he, he promised that um, the holy spirit would teach us <clears throat> excuse me and the final thing i've written down is sanctifies it's not an exhaustive list list this but another thing that the spirit seems to be a work of the spirit in us is sanctify and that word obviously literally means make holy to sanctify he um, he in us god in us his spirit in us transforms our desires so in one sense of course we are made holy in christ because we're in christ um, the Apostle Paul loves that expression, uses it all over his letters. We are in Christ, so we are made holy because of Christ's uh, work of, of salvation. And by faith, we appropriate that for ourselves, don't we? And yet, by the Spirit, we are also being made holy. He is changing us from one degree of glory to another. And as we become more and more sanctified, we'll see in a little bit when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, that we, we, we take on the likeness of him more and that's a work of the spirit in our lives sometimes i don't recognize that in myself as much as i'd like to but we, it, it's an ongoing work of the spirit we're made holy in christ and yet he is making us holy so um let's just look quickly just so you know it's not just me um saying these things there's a few verses using these um using these words and they're not there's lots of overlap in fact some of the verses that i've pulled out talk about filling but they also talk about empowering and they also talk about down payments there's a real overlap talking about the word and the work of the spirit <clears throat> oh another thing just i've just seen in my notes which is nice the, the image i gave of the the sail and the breath of god filling us filling our sails uh, there's another metaphor which um, i read Mark, the, the great preacher martin lloyd jones here in London, um, talked about the the um, enjoining of not don't be don't be filled with wine, but filled with the Spirit. You know that that juxtaposition. Don't do this. Do this. And of course, that's um, that's written actually to a community of faith, not to individuals. It's written to the body. When you come together, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You know this is who you are. And he uses the the idea of the of the English that we use when we say about somebody having had too much to drink that they're under the influence, and actually that's quite a nice little um, phrase to remember. It's like rather than being drunk with wine, be filled with the spirit. Rather than be under the influence of of drink, be under the influence of the spirit. Be um, filled with him in such a way that he's the one who's has the influence on your life. I just quite like that little aside there okay so romans uh, many of the things we're going to find about come from paul because of course as we've already said 
we read the narrative in Acts and the Gospels about Jesus' passion in the Gospels, and then the narrative of the Acts of the Apostles is then what happens when the Spirit comes and fills the church and the church grows. And then, of course, the Epistles is very much the kind of outworking of now these churches established throughout the region, um, how they live, how they behave, who they are, how they respond, how they understand things. And of course, the epistles flesh all of that out for us wonderfully. So many of these are from the epistles, from the letters written to churches and to individuals. May the God of hope fill you as you believe in him. So you may abound in hope. So there's an act there. There's a, the God, God of hope fills us. So we abound in hope by the power of the spirit and, and, and have all joy and peace. All of these things wrapped up together as God fills us. And some of the things, um, some of the most beautiful things to read when you're um, just reading or praying for others is usually the prayers of Paul. They're so rich. There's so much in them, I find. And many of these are, like there's another one here, actually, Ephesians, isn't it, where very wordy, Paul, but he, he says, I pray according to the wealth of his glory, he will grant you to be strengthened with power. So there, the power of the spirit, it says the power through the spirit in the inner person. There, the power is about your strengthening, that we be strengthened. And again, this is written to churches, not, not an individual, remember, um, Ephesians, but other churches as well. He will grant you be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner person that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. And then towards the end, he said, you'll be filled up to all the fullness of God. You see this idea of being filled with the spirit, of being empowered by the spirit, of knowledge of God because of the spirit's work in your life. They're all intertwined together. The, the word baptizes in the spirit, um, I think I've said in your notes, that it's, not, it's not actually a very common phrase in the Bible, and yet it's for some reason became a very common phrase um, in Pentecostal and evangelical churches, particularly Pentecostal church movement. This idea of baptism in the spirit became very, very, you know, used a lot. The word is used a lot. Um, I don't know about your experience. I think personally, um, I, I would use that word less, and I've seen it used less, uh, much more, um, the biblical language of receiving the spirit there seems to be much more of that it doesn't in some senses that's not it's not that important um, but in terms of expectation and understanding of the work of the spirit and the way the bible leads us to understand that um, some people and some of you would have discussed this in your breakout group you know experience a real clear tangible moment when they experienced and received a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit for the first time. And I did as a young person, became a Christian as a young person, I was, and I was prayed for, and I definitely had the first moment of really experiencing the presence of God in me uh, and around me. And that was known as a baptism in the spirit. Um, and uh, some people would still use that terminology, which is fine. I, I just said on that slide, I think, um, um, it is language that's used in the Bible, but there are other things we can call it. And I think the important thing to say, and sometimes baptism in the spirit language leads us to think that it happens once, that well, once we need um, an outpouring of God's spirit, and then that's a done deal. Whereas actually, I think the Bible encourages us and, and, and the language of God's involvement and filling us and empowering us is not a once off event. It's an ongoing um, relationship isn't it with God it's an ongoing encounter with God so so we must be careful not to kind of give the impression that <clears throat> yes you've become a Christian but have you had this experience of baptism in the spirit and then once you have that's that actually no it's like the, the, the presence of God in our lives is such that we're empowered we can pray for more power to understand things we can be filled we can receive um, we can catch the breath of God, you know, we can change our posture to make sure we're listening to him. All of those things are going on as we know the spirit in us. So, um, <clears throat> but the other thing to say, which I think is, is helpful, is that, as I said earlier, the word baptize means to drench. And um, I think that's just a good reminder that if, we, if we're Christians who, and we know God and we're filled with God and his spirit is at work in our lives, we're supposed to know about it. You know, this is not meant to be a kind of just a, um, um, 
you know, a cerebral ascent to a set of beliefs. It's that if you get, if you're drenched, you know about it, don't you? If you, if I have to walk home shortly in the rain, I'm going to know about it if I get drenched. It's an experience that you know about. Um, and, and all of this language suggests that we know about, when we know God and when his spirit is at work in us, we know it's experiential. It's not just um, assenting to a, a set of truths. Um, and that's definitely something that we should encourage people this expectation that to know god changes things it changes us and we know we experience him he's not um he's not um you know dormant as it were <laughs> uh, he's active and, uh, and at work in our lives and we should know about it and other people should know about it as well around us i guess yeah that's another challenge isn't it like peter and the apostles i think people knew that god was at work in them <laughs> and stuff was changing. <clears throat> so power, he empowers the next one. And as I said already, power is not only about sounds, signs and wonders. It's about more than that, but it's not about less than that, if you see what I mean. So I think power is about the miraculous, isn't it? Um, and knowing God at work, we have a certain expectation in our understanding of scripture and in our church tradition of God intervening miraculously in circumstances. And we've seen i'm sure many of us have seen uh, experienced that you may have experienced healing personally or seen all sorts of miraculous acts of god um but the power as well as i say in the in the bible is often for hope it's internal it's it's power to know things acts 1 8 we started jesus says you'll know power when the holy spirit comes on you to be witnesses so that's that's a work of the power of god to be a witness Stephen, full of grace and power, as we read, was doing great wonders. God confirmed their witness with signs and wonders and miracles or works of power. But then as we read in Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, as we read earlier, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work. The power of the Spirit gives us the, the knowledge of God and hope. And I think... Um, to know hope at, in this world, to really know hope by the power of the spirit in this world, and particularly maybe at this time in our you know, society, is a very powerful thing. And to attest to that and to be a witness to that. You know, we talked about being witness to Jesus Christ. If you can witness, if I can witness to the truth that I have um, a real solid eternal hope that is uh, not shaken by circumstances or fears or, or or other concerns then that is a that is a, a mighty powerful witness to the world around us and to know that is a work of the spirit in us he's a seal we talked about that a down payment if you like um i'm gonna race through these a bit more <clears throat> so what two corinthians paul writes it's god who establishes us with you in christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us, given, him, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I read this yesterday. Jesus is the indefatigable yes to all the promises God has made. And the spirit is the guarantee of the future eschatological fulfillment of those promises. The spirit is the guarantee. And we, and we know in part now, we see in part now, and one day we'll see fully um but now we know god and we know him by his spirit and that's our guarantee of all that is to come the fulfillment the ultimate fulfillment of god's promises it ultimately in the new creation which we is our hope which we look forward to um another quick allusion to that verse from romans 8 that it's the spirit in us who enables us to cry out abba father so you've received the spirit uh, paul says of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father the spirit bears witness with our spirits that we're god's children we know god as father paul is saying because of the work of the spirit in us it's a work of god's spirit in us to know our father it's not all about understanding i believe very much that the christian faith is a reasonable faith the resurrection of christ happened it changes everything and it means he is who he says he is but there's a supernatural work of God that enables us to know God, to know that we know God and know God as our Father, a work of the Spirit. 
he enlightens us. The spirit is our teacher and our guide. I don't know about you, but I need a teacher and a guide. He's known as the spirit of wisdom and truth. Um, he brings uh, things, he illuminates things in our minds and our hearts. Um, and he teaches us. And this is so important in our, in our faith, I think, to, to understand and have expectation of that. But one thing I'd say is just as a caveat, I'm just going to check the chat because there's a few things in it. Okay. Um, one of the things I think is important to say is that we do this together, and unfortunately we're doing it on Zoom at the moment, but normally, you know, you're in a room together, unable to talk, and because we need one another to learn, you know, we, we, we need to learn in community, and um, of course the Bible, for the vast majority of it, its history has been heard in community and read in community, uh, and I think our culture very individualistic culture encourages us in all matters really to to rely on our own understanding and to be able to sit at home and read the bible and understand it fully um, subverts i think the context that we're meant to live in as christians in community in family in a body and so yes i believe wholeheartedly that the spirit is the spirit of illumination and that he teaches us but we need to submit not only to the word of God and the understanding of what's written down, but to one another in understanding that. Do you know what I mean? There are, there are people, and I think I've seen it amongst immature, younger Christians, you know, people who are not long in the faith, who think that because the spirit brings the word alive, they can understand everything and often leads to confusion and sometimes to big mistakes, actually, because the spirit told me this. And of course he didn't, um, because you're learning to discern um, when the spirit is speaking and when you're um, wishful thinking or, or whatever it is. And, and I wouldn't, I don't want to detract from the fact that the Bible clearly teaches that we should expect the spirit to teach us, but we must do that. I think in humble submission to one another as community um, and, and to make sure that we don't in believing that the spirit teaches us, we don't make ourselves the guide of that, the teacher and the guide who decides what that is. And that's helpful, I think, just to when you're dealing with younger Christians and, and helping people understand. I do think, um, yeah, we, we, uh, we need one another and we need to do this kind of thing in community, which is great. Which is why I love what you're doing here. So fine, the final thing he does then sanctifies. It's not the final thing he does. It's the last one on our list that I've um, added in. But to make holy, to transform our desires. And uh, Paul to the Galatians says, the flesh has desires that are opposed to the spirit. So there's a war in our fleshly, in our bodies, in our flesh, in our will. The flesh doesn't only mean body, does it? It means our, our fleshly self, our, our sinful nature, our emotions and our will. The spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh. They're in, in opposition to each other. So you cannot do what you want. We know that, I'm sure, <laughs> that there's often a tug of war, there's a pull, there's a, there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, and, we, and as Paul says elsewhere, you know, we wanted, I know I want to do this, but I do that, and I don't want to do that, but I do this. There's a tug of war. But if we are, as I say, if I, can, if I may use that metaphor again, if we are putting up our sails in such a way that our, our, our desire is to is to move in step with God, you know, to catch his breath in our sails, as it were, in our lives, in our families, in our work, in our study, whatever it is we're doing, that to, to put him first and to honor him first and to listen to him and to read his word, then by his spirit, he changes us. Now, you, you, you're all witnesses of that, I know, of yourselves and people around you. He changes us. He transforms us. And in, and in so doing... Um, we bear what uh, Paul writes to the Galatians about as fruit of the spirit. Um, and this is one of those things that in Sunday school, there's get the kids to memorize, don't they? The um, fruit of the spirit. And they, and in our Sunday school, actually, for a while, we had these uh, certificates. This is a little while ago, obviously, because we've not had a Sunday school for over a year, but we have these little certificates. Um, uh, and if you demonstrated one of the fruits of the spirit, you know, if you were kind or something, you'd get a, a certificate saying kindness and it's got actually a picture of a piece of fruit on it as well so each of the fruit of the spirit had an associated real fruit of a tree sort of thing and we'd give these out 
teaching kids about the fruit of the spirit. I think the important thing about the fruit of the spirit, if we remember back to Acts 2, the way that Luke describes the community of God, the new people, you know, the new church, is um, the spirit, new spiritual community. It's loving. It's a loving community. You know, they shared everything. They weren't grabbing and holding back, apart from one exception. They were a powerful community. There were signs and wonders, you, you know, attesting to what they said to be true to the kingdom. They're a growing community. It's organic. It's changing. The gospel's preached and people are converted. And they're an orthodox community. So they're committed to the teaching and to obedience to Christ. And all of that to say <clears throat> is that when the spirit is in his church at work, when we are, um, you know, when we are properly oriented and our sails are filled with his breath, then there's, there's fruit, there's change, things happen. Um, you know, fruit just means the outcome of something, doesn't it? So the, the, the expression, we have an expression, the fruit of our labors, you know, we do something and there's an outcome. Um, or the fruit of our loins, <laughs> you know, we have children, but the fruit is an outcome of something that's happening, and, and the fruit of the Spirit is an outcome of God's presence among us, the things that change. Um, again, I'd say, you know, we must apply caution to reading the Bible in very individualistic ways, because the letter to the Galatians is to written to a church, not a person, and so it does us good to stop and try and take off our individualistic Western lenses and try and think in a more Eastern, ancient Eastern way about applying these things. But essentially, knowing God, being filled with the spirit brings about holiness. It makes us holy. It sanctifies us. And therefore, the fruit of the spirit, which we may be able to recite from Galatians 5, um, is just the likeness of God. You know, it's it's. It's the likeness of him, being with him, allowing him to work changes us. And the outcome is the fruit. And that's the likeness of God. And one, one thing I, um, I personally think is helpful is I think that just as the um, vine produces grapes and the apple tree produces apples, the spirit in us produces his fruit. And... I don't think it's fruits. Um, the, I think that the word in the in the in Galatians is actually singular, and and I think that's helpful because I've heard many people say, "Well, I'm going to work on this fruit of the spirit this week. I'm going to work on gentleness or self-control." And actually, I think what more what Paul is saying here is that the fruit, the outcome of the spirit's work, is the likeness of of Him among us, and just like you might describe. Um, blackberry you might describe the fruit of the bramble as it's very very dark red and it's got lots of little um berries made up making up one big berry and it's quite tart but when it's um when it's ripe it's got beautiful juicy sweetness those are the characteristics of a bramble uh, or a blackberry and it goes well in in a crumble with apple but uh, the fruit of the spirit is is the fruit of the spirit it's is a fruit of, it's the result of being with him and of, of knowing him and allowing his work in our lives. And the characteristics of that fruit, rather than being dark, red and juicy, are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. It's being like him. That's what he um, does in our lives, which is a beautiful truth. Um, and, uh, and, and again, as I say, you know, to be understood very much within the church, not just within our own hearts and lives, although, of course, in my heart and life, I want to be transformed into the likeness of him. But as the community of, of believers, you know, as the family of God, together, that fruit should be evident among us, that outcome of his presence with us. We're coming into land. Don't worry. It's about 10 to 12. So. The final thing I'm just going to look at when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, is gifts of the Spirit, which is um, probably one of the, in our tradition, certainly charismatic tradition, as, as I come from, and most of you do, I think, some of you at least, um, is one of the things we talk about when we hear about the Holy Spirit, we're often talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, you know, in Joel's prophecy, in the Minor Prophets, Joel prophesied about that moment when the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, men and women, old and young, and so on. And, um, and there would be prophecy and visions. There would be gifts given as a result. 
just a few verses. Um, Paul writes to Corinth right at the beginning of that letter to Corinth, the first one where he's basically writing, isn't he, just to put them straight on a whole raft of stuff they're getting wrong. They're making a mess of lots of things. And the thing I find encouraging about one Corinthians actually is that they seem to be getting so much wrong. And yet Paul doesn't say, oh, this project hasn't worked. We're just going to shut this church down and, and start again. He you know, he doesn't, that's not his course of action. His course of action is to keep encouraging them and keep teaching them, um, even though they sound like they're a complete mess. You may relate. Um, I do sometimes. You do not lack any spiritual gift, he writes to them, as you wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the gifts you need, spiritual, supernatural, are available. Um, and in a way, although we don't think of it like this, uh, when we think of the gifts of the Spirit, we think of something very specific I'm going to come on to in a minute. The Spirit was given in order to empower gospel witness, remember? That's one of the, that's the thing Jesus said at the beginning of Acts, or the one thing Luke recounts him saying. You'll receive power. Why? To be witnesses to be gospel witnesses to say and show what you've what you know um, and in a way that's a gift i think in a way that's a gift this ability to be witnesses to christ and if you look at peter and the transformation in him i think that's a, a absolute a gift to him of an ability to witness powerfully to what he knew about christ in a way he just didn't have before um, but in terms of using what we might call gifts of the spirit the gifts that are given supernatural gifts in order to bless one another because that is what paul says is there um is the point of them he says this again this is the corinth since you're eager for manifestations of the spirit since you want to experience the supernaturalness of god which i think is a good thing i think we should want that we know a powerful supernatural god do it in order to strengthen the church don't forget that the gifts of the spirit are not seems to what seems to be going in corinth is people want them because they want to look good or they're exciting or they're you know they're the kind of wow gifts like the obviously supernatural ones like praying in other languages you haven't learned seems to be the one that lots of people want in corinth because it's kind of obviously supernatural and exciting he's like well you're you're on the wrong track the point of seeking the gifts is to strengthen the church and the other thing that we read is that gifts give a foretaste again it's a bit like that guarantee of what's to come they give a foretaste of what's to come and the very famous chapter bang in the middle of you know paul is writing to corinth about all the ways their worship services are a mess and they've got the wrong priorities and they're doing things wrong but right in the middle of it he then writes this beautiful hymn to love reminding them that the whole point of what he's saying is there has to be love among you in order to use the gifts as they should be used, they must be done in love. And it's not about your own, I don't know, spiritual ambitions or, or how you look. Love never ends. If there are prophecies, they will be set aside. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be set aside. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when what is perfect comes, the partial will be set aside. Gifts are a foretaste of, of something that's going to be so much better. Um, and I don't know uh, how, I don't know all of you, so I don't know how you understand the gifts of the Spirit or whether you're familiar with them or you use them or you're in churches where that's the norm. But just to say, they, we, we know and serve a God who is supernatural. And uh, when Paul writes to the churches in the New Testament, they very much live in a world where supernatural paradigm is very obvious to them they don't live in a very in a very kind of um in, in the world that we live in you know rationalistic um this idea that um some something you're skeptical about something unless you can see it and touch it that their cultures were much more aware of and open to and actually it was much more prevalent all around than the idea of the spirit world and gods of course many many gods um and so when he writes, when Paul writes to churches, and particularly now I'm thinking um, about Romans and Corinth, about gifts and supernatural expressions of God among them, um, 
to them, I think that would have been just not so strange, if you like. Um, but we should remember, and, and I think it's helpful for us to not be sceptical, but to remember that God is supernatural. God is spirit. Um, and so we should expect some supernatural things to happen. Uh, and, and, one of, and some of those things are things like praying in languages you've not learnt, so that someone else can interpret in the church and everyone can be built up. That's what Paul says it's for. Um, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. There are different lists in the Bible of, of these gifts and they overlap a bit and they're not exhaustive, but you'll find them in 1 Corinthians 12, you'll find them in Ephesians 4, other gifts, gifts to the church, you'll find them in Romans 12. And in 1 Peter 4, we come back to our friend Peter, he says this, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So you know that the word charismatic or charisma, charismata comes from the word grace and gift. You know, they're grace gifts to us. They're varied manifestations of the grace of God toward us. And therefore, they are there to acknowledge that God's grace to us comes in many different ways. And as we use gifts of the spirit in, in the church body, we do it in order to build one another up primarily. So um, I don't know, you've probably got some examples of this. I mean, obviously, if you experience supernatural healing, then you've been built up. But that also then inspires faith and confidence in God and his love and his ability and his supernatural um, activity in our lives. Uh, he's, if he's at work among us, as we, as I think we all acknowledge and believe he is and want our sails to be up in a way that attract the breath of God, then we should expect and encourage among us, you know, um, signs that God is among us and God is working among us. And sometimes, as in Corinth, the use of gifts of the spirit together in the assembly, as it were, is, me is messy, right? And we need correction and we need pulling back and we need to well, hold on a minute you know that that's that's not really been done in the right way or that's not you know whatever it is Paul says you're making a bit of a mess of it but that's okay I don't want you to stop he even says doesn't he in 1 Corinthians um 14 I think it is um you know it's a mess your service because everyone's speaking at once you've got everyone's praying in tongues over the top of one another nobody's interpreting everyone just wants to be listened to that's not what it's about he doesn't say I want you to stop doing it. He says, no, no, I don't stop. I won't stop anyone from doing that um, because these are manifestations of God's varied grace among us, as Peter says. So we encourage it and we want it and we want God to be at, at work among us. But we do so uh, as Paul had to do by uh, making sure that we're doing it in such a way that is beneficial to the church and that obviously ultimately honours God. If you wanted a, um, <clears throat> a clear explanation of the gifts of the spirit, what they are and how to use them, I'm sorry you didn't get it because <laughs> um, we are almost out of time. But I just want to, before, we before I pray, I just wanted to read an excerpt from um, Andrew Wilson's book, Spirit and Sacrament. Um, it's a book about how we... It's called Spirit and Sacrament, an invitation to you charismatic worship. And what he's trying to do there is, is to draw together uh, the, the more traditional um, frameworks and patterns and liturgies of, of some churches and the way um, faith is expressed in church. And then the charismatic, because there are lots of churches in the world who are very, very uh, faithful, reformed, biblical churches, but don't don't operate in the gifts of the spirit. Uh, and actually he's trying to encourage both and um, a beautiful kind of, you know, a depth and a joy. In fact, he uses a wonderful analogy of a trampoline. Uh, he says, if you want more bounce, you need more depth. You've got to go deeper into the thing to get more bounce. And he's like, let's look deeply into the, um, you know, into, into our faith and into the richness of it because we want more joy, we want more charismata, we want more bounce. But anyway, this is uh, just a little excerpt from Andrew's book to finish. So whatever else we may say about the experience and gifts of the spirit, it is clear that to be a Christian in Greece in the AD 50s, and so he's talking about Corinth there, 
meant at least five things. One, you had already been baptized or drenched in one spirit into one body. Two, you had been given one spirit to drink. Taken together, these two images are highly experiential. If you are drenched or have a drink, you really know it. And suggest that the experience of the spirit is both initiatory and ongoing. Three, you had been given some gifts or manifestations of the spirit for the common good, whether gifts of wisdom, knowledge or prophecy, healing or miracles, languages or their interpretation, faith or distinguishing between spirits or whatever else. Four, you had not been given all of these gifts and nor were any gifts common to all believers. Five, as a result, you were called to serve the other members of the body with your gifts just as you needed them to serve you with theirs. That meant you had to see your gifts as a means of exercising love for others, rather than a means of spiritual gratification or showing off, a point which Paul then develops at some length, both in uh, principle and in practice. It's worth pointing out those five things present challenges to certain forms of charismatic Christianity today. That just think is quite a good summary. When we read what the Bible has to say about the spirit-filled life, um, we find sometimes that maybe we've, uh, I find certainly I've appropriated and absorbed certain ways of thinking that maybe are not reflected in the scripture. And it's good to come back always to what the Bible says about our expectations. But our expectations should be, if the spirit is at work in us as he is and in his church, then things should happen. There should be uh, works of power. There should be, the witness in our hearts to faith, there should be great boldness, there should be hope, and we should really encourage the use of gifts and see the fruit of God at work in our churches. Amen. Uh, um, can I, shall I just pray, Andy, before you close? Is that all right? <clears throat> okay. Uh, our Father, I thank you that as we've gathered today, we gather together to our Father, that together... Uh, we know you as father, that together as brothers and sisters, as your children, you have shown to us yourself as father, that that's what you choose to do. And I thank you that by your spirit at work in us, we know you, we love you. I thank you that we have experienced your love. We've experienced a transformation in our lives through the salvation of Jesus Christ who has uh, brought us from death into life, Lord. I thank you that all of those things are true. And I thank you that uh, as we go now to our various lives, days and weeks ahead, Lord, we, we want to be those who put our sail up to catch your breath, to be those who listen to you, who experience you in the day to day, and who respond to that call to be witnesses to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes everything. I uh, thank you. Thank you for our time together. And I pray for my brothers and sisters now that you would uh, continue to work in their lives, speak to them, to grow fruit in them and to challenge and encourage them as they take uh, that witness, as they perform as, as witnesses to the truth and the good news of Jesus Christ, that you bless them, uh, Lord, that by your spirit, you would use them, that they would use gifts that build up your church and that glorify and make much of Jesus. Amen.